Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Year in the Bible podcast. This is your host, Jay Smith. We are in the Gospel of Mark. Today, we're going to be reading together chapter 13, uh, and then we will continue on. We're, we're in kind of that Holy Week season, uh, and by kind, I mean we're in Holy Week. And if you remember from last week, chapter 12, uh, one of the the primary, well, there's two kind of primary stories that I pull from that is one is the parable of the tenants, the wicked tenants who reject the sun. Uh, and then in 11, we had the cleansing of the temple. We had the fig tree and all of that is important to keep in the context of our minds as we move toward what today and obviously 14 is going to look like next week. And so chapter 13, we just want to confess here from the top is chapter 14 has a lot of language that feels apocalyptic. Excuse me, chapter 13 has some language that is apocalyptic in nature. And so what that means is that some things that have been interpreted to be specifically toward the end times. And so I know we live in a culture that is fascinated with the end times and that kind of ideal of uh, when is Jesus coming back? When are the when's the suffering going to happen? The tribulations, the destruction. And, and Jesus uses images uh, that come from Daniel and some different things that would have made this connected to the Old Testament text. And we're not going to spend a ton of time, uh, if any time at all, dealing with those things. And I know for some of you who would listen to this, that might be a disappointment because you would love to take a deep dive into those, th those things. And maybe we'll do an aside at some point to deal with our kind of um, understanding viewpoint of this specific text in regards to the end times. But we do believe that this is written for a uh, and read initially in a context, a cultural context and a time period. And so a lot of the things that that Jesus talks about, the early church would have um, had seen take place in their time uh, with the destruction of the temple in 70. Uh, and then in addition to that, some other things that were taking place with great persecutions and different things in Jesus's or in the early church's first 50 to 100 years. So 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 we don't want to avoid those things, but we do just recognize that this does get complex because we do come uh, as we do to most scriptures with a preconceived idea of what is going on here. So I say that because we're going to start here in verse one. And I want to talk just a little bit about the temple uh, and and kind of. And I just feel like this is an easy opportunity to make a ploy or make a uh, just a reminder that if you can at any point or you have a chance to go to the Holy Land, there's some just moments that stick with you forever. And so this is verse one of chapter 13. Now, as Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, look at these tremendous stones and buildings. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. All will be torn down. So just a reminder that that this does happen. This is Jesus directly prophesying what happens in 70 AD. And so, Jimmy, will you do me just a man, if you can, like a four minute or less uh, walkthrough of the history of the destruction of the temple by Rome? Yeah. So the things that we're describing that are happening in the life of Jesus are happening in the 30s AD. Uh, we know that because Pontius Pilate is the governor of uh, Judea. 40 years after that, uh, a rebellion begins, 30 years really, after the after when Jesus is crucified, a rebellion begins uh, that had been building by the uh, the Jewish people against the Romans. Different groups rebelled against Rome. Uh, that started in the mid-60s. 
there were holdouts in different Jewish cities, and uh, a Roman general named Vespasian came in and came in with his son, uh, Titus, and both of them will eventually become emperors, and they conquered these places. And when they came to Jerusalem, they sieged it for a period of months and uh, finally took the city. And when they did, it had been a brutal fight, and the Roman soldiers kind of lost control when they went in, as a lot of times happens in, in sieges. And they tore down everything, and they offered sacrifices. They they killed people in the temple area. Uh, when Jesus talks about all the stones being to- torn down, if you do take a trip to the Holy Land, you can see where the great big, huge uh, limestone carved limestone rock uh, stones of the wall were pulled down. And so there was a a great and tragic destruction. The early church, when they read the things that we're about to read in Mark 15, Mark thirteen. They kind of saw that fulfilled when Jerusalem was destroyed. A lot of what Jesus is talking about, which is which is what the disciples are going to ask: when when will these things take place? Because Jesus is going to say, "Stones have been torn down." Vespasian actually leaves and becomes emperor. His son Titus finishes things up, and um, the destruction of the temple. If uh, if people know about the Colosseum in Rome, which is probably the, outside the Vatican, the most famous thing in Rome, that was paid for by the destruction of the temple in seventy A.D. And there's an arch of Titus where Titus makes an arch that it's celebrating his victory over the Jews. And there's carvings in it of, uh, you know, soldiers taking away like the uh, menorah candle and everything from the temple. They, they plundered it and it had a lot of gold in it and a lot of precious jewels and, and, and uh, metals. And it, yeah, it built a huge stadium in Rome. So let me ask two questions to kind of expand on this is number one, like for somebody that's listening to this and hears some of the history um, that that you're talking about, and often we'll refer to Josephus. Is is Josephus the primary um, his, historical reference that we look to when it comes to the destruction of Jerusalem? Yeah, so we have other Jewish writings from the first century. Uh, the bulk of those are actually uh, the New Testament, because the New Testament was written by Jewish people for the most part. Uh, we have some Dead Sea Scrolls that were also date from the first century, and there was a Jewish philosopher named Philo in Alexandria, Egypt, who was also in the first century. Outside of that, Jewish sources are are limited. So Josephus was um, a Jewish man. Um, his Jewish his Hebrew name is Yosef ben Matayahu, of a priestly family, and he was a part of this rebellion against Rome, but he realized it was going to fail. And he actually was a turncoat. He uh, was a part of a group of guys and they agreed to draw straws and he made an agreement, well, we'll draw straws and everybody will kill the person next to them. And the last two that are left, one will kill the other and then the last one will kill himself. And if you look it up in like Wikipedia, there's the Josephus mathematical problem. It's a fascinating mathematical problem. But it ends up that Josephus and one other guy are the last ones left. It was Josephus' idea and it ends up that he, he and this other guy are the last two left. And when that happens, Josephus says, hey, let's not, let's not kill ourselves. Let's surrender. And when he does that, he surrenders to Vespasian and kind of does this prophetic thing saying to Vespasian, hey, I think you're going to be the emperor. After all of this destruction takes place, Josephus writes a history of the Jews. It's called the Antiquities of the Jews. And he writes a history of the first Jewish war where the temple is destroyed. And he writes his perspective. And he apparently was with Vespasian and Titus during some of this time and saw some of this destruction taking place. But when it comes to first century history of this this area of Judea, the areas that we're reading about in the Gospels, Josephus is primarily it. There are plenty of the elder and some other Roman historians that write about some things in this area as well, but none of it to the detail that Josephus does. So we kind of over we kind of use Josephus and the Gospels to kind of and the Book of Acts to kind of look at first century culture a lot. 
historians do too. It's not just a religious thing. So skipping down here just a little bit, um, I think I had a second question, but you answer pretty much all of it at the same time. So, but skipping down here a little bit in verse nine, um, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And so once again, this is important to remember the context that's taking place in this. Um, he's talking directly to his disciples, which we know most of their stories, whether through tradition or, or for, for a few, we know because of the stories in the scripture. Uh, but we'll start here in verse nine. You must watch out for yourselves. You'll be handed over to councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. First, the gospel must be preached to all nations. When they arrest you and hand you over to trial, do not worry about what to speak, but say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will hand over brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, so if you take this in the context of having a conversation with the disciples specifically, Travis, why don't you, how would you hear this? And and then number one, and then number two, how would you see this through the lens of what we know about the church's uh, early history? Um, the first thing that I try to remind myself of, like you said earlier, is tr- is trying to process this through the lens of the disciples and not like this, these are words or a prophecy that Jesus is giving to me personally. Um, and so I've, you know, as we've read through it and been talking through it, like I just imagine this big sense that they have, the disciples have because of the things that Jesus is saying um, that there's about to be this kind of big shift, this big change and a season of really hard things. And, you know, something I, also wonder um because i've struggled with it in the old testament too and i mean throughout the bible i guess in different places like when jesus is speaking um i tend to want to assume every word he says is some kind of like literal prophecy or like this unshakable truth or whatever not that i think it's not truth but um i'm not sure how to phrase that i guess and so what i'm realizing is like he also as a normal person and he talks with, you know, we talk about hyperbole a lot and that's sometimes hard to grasp. I think because of that reason, like if I think that the words of Jesus are absolute truth and give him this like sort of unchanging statuesque place in my mind, like it also makes them cold and not human and not, uh, approachable in, in a way. Um, And so all that to say is like reminding myself that as he's saying these different things, it's not this list of events maybe that is, is going to happen. Like there are some things that he says that like, you know, the things will happen, but, um, trying not to just look at each verse as this bullet list this checklist that's going to happen, but stepping back a little bit and realizing like, he's just sort of saying to these guys, his disciples, like, things are going to get really hard. There's going to be some terrible things that happen and, um, and you know, get ready. Um, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Like he's kind of encouraging them and pushing them through that. He's not just saying, Oh, the end is coming. Sorry. Good luck. Um, I don't know that. Well, yeah. And you alluded to that first point. We talked about this and I think it was in chapter 12 in that podcast, but you talked about when, Jesus tells the parables of the wicked tenant or the parable of the wicked tenants is 
are there specific ties that the language is using to the prophets, right? Do you remember that question right. in conversation? And you just yeah. talked about it. So was there one that was beaten in the head? And, you know, it's like, well, it could be made, but it's really just kind of a general conversation about the mistreatment of the prophets that came before. And so in the same way, I can see how this might go in the context of that kind of same conversation is like, well, who was he talking about specifically? And you do see a lot of these things taking place, uh, being tried. You see it in the book of Acts early and often, right? Where they're before the the Sanhedrin in the same way that Jesus was, uh, being persecuted. We see Stephen's death and, and we, anyway, it's just all over the gospel or the book of Acts and, and even some, we get to find some of the rest of that through the rest of the epistles. And so the thing that it brings to my mind and, and just making a connection and then, and Travis, if you had anything else, I don't want to jump over that, but as it goes back, actually to me, it goes back to Mark chapter 10, when James and John are talking to Jesus about, because Jesus just predicts his death and they say, we want to sit at your right hand. Right. And Jesus says, um, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I experience? Which is kind of code language for suffering, right? The suffering of Jesus. And they said to him, we are able. And then Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I experience. But to sit at my right hand is, or sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to give, but it's for those to whom it's been prepared. So I think about that in, in the fact that Jesus has already been alluding to the pending uh, their suffering is that's how this and really like I think it was Justin the martyr who said that the blood of the saints is the seed for the church right like this early understanding of suffering and persecution is the way the church would explode across the known region um, and so anyway that's that's kind of where I go to when I, I start thinking about these things so Travis if you had something to say that I, I jumped on top of but if not Jimmy why don't you Help us. Is there anything that you want to add to this? Uh, well, Travis, do you have anything? <laughs> was, was there more? <clears throat> uh, just the sort of general question that I always have in my mind of like, what also does this chapter, like how does it fit in? Like, I mean, and Jay, you did a good job with reminding me of chapter 10 and some of those things tying it back. Like, you know, instead of looking at chapter 13 as this end time section that's its own deal, like remembering that it's part of this whole story. And so what, what is important to, to remember in that is just a general question. So you don't necessarily have to answer that right now, but. Yeah. And I think, so one of the things I struggle with on these podcasts each week is, do you go ahead and tell the things that are coming, right? For somebody who's reading the gospel of Mark for the first time, do you kind of blow the story that that's about to happen? I think the thing that I would, tell listeners to do so that I don't have to say, Hey, there, here's what's coming. Just like the things that are in 11 and in 12, this story, you're right. in Mark 13 is a part of that whole thing. It's a, it's a part of the whole moment of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He's got things to say about the temple. Uh, he's got things to say about himself and he's encouraging his disciples and warning them that all fits with all of these chapters leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. So they're going to be things that we're about to read in Mark 14 that have like keywords that are pointing back to these chapters that we've just read, starting in chapter 11, both scriptural passages and keywords. So for example, it, later on here in Mark 13, he says, Hey, keep, keep awake. Okay. Don't go to sleep. Uh, stay awake. And we're going to, you know, in the next podcast, in the next chapter, we're going to see that again. Like it's easy. I, I guess the unfortunate thing about us doing like a, a chapter a week is it's easy to kind of lose that, 
that feel like, oh, this is what we just read. And Jesus has been just like a an Old Testament prophet. He's been speaking against Jerusalem and against the temple system since he got to town. And I, I also don't want us to always kind of conflate all the gospels. I want each gospel author to have its own, their own presentation. But we do have other gospels, just like we're going to look at Josephus to, to get context. We do pull in other gospels to get context on Mark. And what you were saying, Travis, about like this isn't, it's easy for us to, it's easy to think of Jesus as kind of like this stoic teacher, I think, in Christianity. He's just teaching these things. And this is, I think this is all full of emotion for Jesus. Like we do this thing in churches called the triumphal entry. There is no triumphal entry for Jesus. A triumph was when a Roman uh, emperor or general came into a town and they gave him a, honor and everybody's clapping and cheering and he comes in and he goes to whatever temple to offer a sacrifice and they give him a big trophy. That's what a triumph is. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, people are cheering initially, but then when he gets to Jerusalem, he gets rejected and it's a, it's an emotional thing. And in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is crying as he's entering. He's weeping for the city as he's entering Jerusalem. And I think that as they're looking at this and he's looking across and says, Hey, I'm going to, I'm telling you, all of these stones are going to be pulled down. I think that this is when he's encouraging them and warning them at the same time. Like, I think that this would have been a hard thing for him to share. I think he knew what pain was coming on Jerusalem. I think a lot of different people did at this time, but I think Jesus has that Holy Spirit thing. So he's probably feeling it. He's concerned about them. Um, and he's trying to warn them, but also let them know, Hey, stick, stick with it. And you're going to be rescued through this. And, um, you know, so there's different ways to kind of imagine that, but I think you're right. It's not a static stoic thing. And I don't think, I also believe in the eternal words of Jesus. His words did not pass away, but I don't think he wants us to nitpick every little word that he used because some of it might be like that hyperbole thing, right? We mentioned last time on the podcast, I think if I say, man, it was an earth shattering moment. I don't really mean the earth that shattered apart. Or if I say to one of my kids, I've told you a thousand times, uh, it may be plus or minus a thousand, right? Like it's, it's, a, it's a way of saying things. So even saying, hey, all of these stones will be pulled down, that may not be a literal, uh, we need to make sure every stone was pulled down, but it may have been like, this whole system's going to fall apart. It's all going to come down, you know? Um, and that's the kind of thing I think he's saying to them here. Yeah, yeah and you, as, as you were talking about it, I thought about, because John, the Gospel of John, and we'll walk through that sometime in the fall into winter, is the gospel of John has a far longer discourse recorded with the disciples in this kind of what would be this timeline. Yeah. Um, and the famous one is the John 14 where, and it's used often at memorial services where Jesus is just reminding like, don't let your hearts be troubled. Uh, my peace, I leave you, you know, and I don't yeah. give as the world gives and, and I'm going to send the Holy spirit. Like this encouragement, because in the same sense that he had this heartbreak for Jerusalem, uh, I mean, I can't imagine the relational sorrow because uh, Jesus is yeah. not, I mean, you know, Isaiah 53 alludes to, he was a man familiar with grief, you know, and we esteemed him not Is he also would have had this emotional tie to the fact that like, these are his brothers and children and friends, uh, that he knew, Hey, your future is going to look like mine. Uh, and, and, but in the midst of that is like, do not let your hearts be troubled. I have, and this is and the reason I don't want to get too much on a soapbox here, but it's the hard passages like John 16, 33, I think it is, or 32 that I've used in this context. And so I know this is not abnormal, but it's like, 
in this world, you'll have trouble. So take heart. I have overcome this world. Well, for us, it's like we can make it through the day, you know, like look at this trial ahead of us. But for a disciple, which I think is true, I don't think Jesus is not saying that to us. But I think if you looked at it in the context of this conversation with the disciples, he's saying like, hey, Peter, whenever you're going to be executed, whenever James, you know, like all of these, like whenever you're going to, because every single one of them outside of John uh, were martyred Um, to think back about, hey, man, take heart. I've overcome this world. So even in the midst of this, this is not the end. And uh, I think that's such an important encouragement as we read these things is there is a direct context that we can't avoid uh, dealing with how Jesus is speaking and hurting and 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 preparing his his yeah. disciples. Well, and we you know, Mark doesn't deal with this until we get to Gethsemane. But uh, you mentioned the Gospel of John and we know from Hebrews, you know, Hebrews says that with great groanings, Jesus cried out to, to his father, like lamenting groans. And Hebrews also says that he was tested in every way. He's tempted in every way, just like us. He's gone through the human experience. In the Gospel of John, when he gets to Jerusalem, he starts talking about his death all the time, even in strange moments where it's like, well, that's kind of awkward. Like they say, hey, hey, these two Hellenistic guys want to come talk to you, Jesus. Can, can they talk to you? And he says, I tell you that his answer right away is, I tell you the truth, unless a seed falls into the ground, it will by no means bear any fruit. You're like, okay, can these guys come talk to you or not? Like, um, he's thinking about dying, right? He's not just, it's not just his heartbreaking for Jerusalem, yeah. but this impending death, he knows. And he's been trying to tell his followers, this is coming. And all the way from Mark chapter eight, he's been saying, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified. And they just don't want to hear it. And so I'm, I'm in the middle of that. How lonely would that be too? Mm. So as he's trying to encourage them, he might also be trying to encourage himself, like in his in his humanness, like, hey, hang in there to the end, because it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. Yeah, I think about it, um, it, kind of the context to give like an inkling of that emotional feeling, uh, but nowhere close at the same time. Is, have you ever had somebody that says, hey, Travis, uh, we need to have a conversation. So can I meet you later this afternoon? And you're like, oh my God. What do we, what did I do? What's going on? Like this idea of this pending, pending reality that Jesus is living in for, I mean, you know, and there's, there's all sorts of kind of theories because there's so much gap in Jesus's life that we don't know, right? Like it skips in every one of the gospels that skips substantial amounts of time in his timeline. So how early in Jesus's life does he know that this is where he's headed? You know, like at some point he figures it out. And is he trying to negotiate with his father about it, right? I can't imagine. Yeah, we know that in Gethsemane he is. In, in Gethsemane, right to the end he is. So is it the kind of thing, you know, uh, Jay and I had a class the other night uh, at New Covenant and bon, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that we, we pray the Psalms because these are the Psalms, these are the prayers that Jesus prayed. Like these were the scriptural prayers of Jesus. Like even though he didn't write them, we know that Jesus as a first century Jew was reading the Psalms and praying the Psalms. And... You know, the Psalms of lament, you know, God, where are you? Have you abandoned me? I don't want, you know, can you take the suffering away from me? Is not absent from those Psalms. Jesus had to have prayed those moments. Yeah. And we don't get full pictures of that, but we do know that it was there because of things like the prayer in Gethsemane. We do know that he was tempted to give up all the suffering early on, the 40 days in the wilderness. 
hey, make turn stones into bread and you'll get out of this. That's in the other gospels. But I think I, for me, I, I'm glad you said what you said, Travis, because it just triggered this thing of like the human Jesus in the middle of this is trying to express things to his human followers about a time that's really difficult and about times that are going to, are going to be really difficult. The other thing I wonder with that too is, you know, we've talked before about sort of the, the dullness of the disciples, Jay, you've said that a lot, like their expectations of this like triumphal entry, uh, this like final kind of overtaking the Jews, taking the rightful place, like all of these kind of military type things that are victorious and all of this imagery and, um, you know, and Jesus like is turning those things upside down. But I, I feel like if I were a disciple still kind of wrestling with that, how much of this season would still feel like positive momentum in the sense of like, we're still seeing Jesus do these miracles. We're going through these places. And even though Jesus is trying to remind them, like, like, yes, there's good to come, but it's not always good. There's going to be hard things. And I think that's, uh, that's the other thing, I guess that just is adding part of the context for me in this, in this, chapter of this, these chapters around this area, like Jesus is trying to remind them and give them hints and let them know, like, even though maybe you think that we're still going in this upward direction, like it's a hard road. Um, and just trying to remind them, like, I guess. Yes. There are some other things in uh, chapter 13 that, that we don't want to miss, but I do think that Travis and, and Jimmy, like you all have helped set a helpful context. Um, and so you go back down to this place. So so using kind of that end of times uh, perspective, if, if you can take a journey with me, those of you who are listening to this. So if you come with the perspective of what we just kind of alluded to or set up, right? Like Jesus is talking to his disciples about a very real thing that's in their near future. That's one perspective. Now, also you could put in the, in your your mind this end times that many of us have read this with so now listen uh to verse 32 but as for the day or the hour no one knows it neither the angels in heaven nor the sun except the father so watch out stay alert for you don't know when the time will come it's like a man going on a journey he left his house and he put his slaves in charge assigning to each its work and commanded the doorkeeper to stay alert stay alert then because you do not know the hour of the or excuse me you do not know when the owner of the house will return whether during evening at midnight when the rooster crows or at dawn or else he might find you asleep when he returns suddenly what i say to you i say to everyone stay alert so for us if you can have those two kind of dueling perspectives uh, you it clearly, and, and we skip some things where Jesus talks about the, uh, the desolation that, you know, the abomination that causes desolation. And for some people, they see that through the lens of what's going to happen in the, in the temple space in a thousand years, 500 years, a hundred years. But for many, they saw this as what took place when there were, you know, pagan sacrifices and pagan statues of gods put up in the temple space, right? Like there's many references in their time to things that would have been defined as the abomination that causes desolation. I want to say something about that because we did kind of jump over these passages. So I'm going to read them real quick because I want to, I do want to say that I believe that knowing from first century Jewish literature, they did expect this. They were hoping for this apocalyptic end of the current age 
and a move into what they would have called the messianic age or the world to come. And they did read Old Testament prophecies as being predictive of that end of time moment. And so I think that the disciples, when they're asking the question, Jesus says, hey, these stones are going to be pulled down. They're like, hey, when is this going to happen? They're thinking, oh, that's going to happen at the very end of things. And Jesus here in these passages, like he says, but in those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall, uh, will be falling from the, the heavens, from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man arriving in the clouds. That's a quote. Uh, the Son of Man arriving in the clouds is a quote from Daniel. The, the passage about the sun being darkened and the moon you know, not giving it light, its light or turning to blood is from Amos. And he says, then everyone will see the Son of Man arriving in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send uh, angels and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Those are all in the context. And when he earlier says, you know, that there know that when you see the, the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, like know that that's the time to know that the time is near. Those are references to Old Testament passages, particularly Daniel, that were interpreted as being apocalyptic. I think Jesus is saying, that there is some, he's aware of some kind of tie-in. But I think the first part of what you just read is the key that we often overlook. And that's, even Jesus says, man, I don't know. Nobody knows the day or the hour that this is going to take place, uh, when these things are going to take place. We know that wars are coming. We know that earthquakes and famines are coming. Don't be troubled. Know that those things are coming. Uh, you're going to be persecuted. Know that that's coming. And, and be aware of all that and pay attention and don't fall asleep. Uh, but as far as like the actual moment, if Jesus doesn't know that, I, then I think that that's a, that's a big part of his answer. Hey, I don't know, guys. I know it's coming, but I don't know when as far as that, that final end. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. So, Travis, any kind of uh, – I know there's going to be somebody that listened to this and think, man, they left out a lot of things. Uh, and I just – full disclosure, we recorded a long podcast uh, that will never see the light of day. That talked about specifically some of kind of our interpretation and understanding of the end times theology that has become prevalent in a lot of uh, lines of thinking. And so uh, if you ever like that, you can always just anytime phone call Jamie Doyle. He'll sit with you and chat. Uh, through. Yeah, yeah. Travis, Travis Bruno. Sorry, or Travis. Our friend Br- Jonathan, Jonathan Kleinsmith. Ooh, we'll just there's another refer one. to somebody who's not even on the podcast. Yeah, perfect. And so. Yeah. But Travis, as we kind of transition out of 13 uh, and we know where 14 is headed, what are some things that you have kind of resonated with so far from 13 or some things that you are looking toward in 14 as Jesus moves towards uh, the end of his life? I think I'm just trying to take the encouragement in the sense that uh, I'm not getting caught up in the fear and anxiety of wondering if these are secret codes for when the end of the world is happening and I need to freak out, like uh, trying to, like I said, I think at the beginning, like taking a step back and looking at it through the story that we've been reading so far, not just this isolated chapter um, and thinking about Jesus with his closest friends, his disciples, um, you know, and talking about the things that he knows because he has um, this connection with God and with the Holy spirit. And I don't really know what it's like, but I'm, assuming things are beginning to be revealed to him, whether it's specific things that he knows or just feelings that he's getting a sense of as he gets closer and closer. Um, But it's just this reminder, uh, like he says several points in this chapter, like to stay awake, uh, to endure to the end. And um, that's the only thing that I take away from it. And I know it's not like necessarily a positive encouragement in the sense of 
that comes with the suffering and the hard things that are in the world. Um, but yeah, just, just the reminder and the words from Jesus and his feeling and his care um, and concern for his disciples in these moments and just trying to lift them up and push them forward um, and keep them going, even though they want kind of this victory and for it to be all right. Uh, clarifying and reminding them that it's not quite that simple. It's not going to be that easy, uh, but to, to encourage them to endure. And so for me, I guess that's just not worrying about the end, but reminding myself that in my journey of following Jesus, um, in my personal life and in my community and in the world around me, like it's not always going to be what I want it to be. It's not always going to be easy. There are going to be moments where I feel like there are doors shut in my face or, um, hard things you know, I don't, I don't know what I have in front of me, I guess, but, um, just that reminder that above it all, uh, to endure. Yeah. I think that's a, a great place unless there's something, Jimmy, would you like to kind of speak to as we move towards 14? Um, anything to be kind of paying attention to as we head that direction? I would just say, remember, there's not chapter breaks in the original. And so when you're reading something like stay alert, which another translation of alert is stay awake. Stay awake then because you don't know when the owner of the house will return, whether it will be during the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows the first time, or at dawn, which would be the rooster crowing the second time, or else he might find you asleep when he suddenly shows up. Those are going to be some of the things you're going to see echoed again in this next chapter. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us in this journey through chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark. Just want to encourage you and remind you, as we always do, is that we want to do this journey through the Gospels together. And so you can do that by joining us at read-scripture.com. That's an easy place to find both the readings for the day, but also a forum that we feel like is incredibly handy to do Uh, and engage in the scripture together because we believe that scripture is intended to be done and dealt with within community. So thanks again for listening. Share this, rate us, review us, whatever you need to do uh, because we believe that Jesus wants to share his story with people uh, everywhere, always. So thanks again. We'll see you next time.